Welcome to the Just Space podcast, where we aim to recognize and elevate the collective voices, experiences, and knowledge to co-produce spaces that physically embody just and inclusive values. We're your co-hosts, Amal Barre, Dr. Eka Permunasari, and Dr. Dian Nostikasari. Today, we are going to explore the intersections between sense of belonging, identity, connections in an increasingly changing world, particularly in the face of climate change, specifically actually what it means to call a place home, how it's changing, and how it can change us as well. So our guest is Dr. Carol Ross Balding, also known as Dr. Carol Balding Cruci. She is the author of Waiting for Mr. Kim and Other Stories, published by University of Georgia Press in 2023, and Helen Button, a novel published by Sawila Press for release in 2024. She is also the director of the Drake Community Press, established in 2014. She teaches at Drake University, located in Des Moines, Iowa. Welcome, Carol. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Carol, in what ways has your writing helped you uncover and at times deepen your connection to the places you've been? Well, my writing covers um, a lot of ground because I write fiction, I produce essays, and I even do a little bit of poetry. And then I do some academic writing. I actually have a PhD and not an MFA. Um, So as a writer, I'm a little bit outside of sort of the mainstream of creative writers. And so I guess place operates in some ways differently depending on the, you know, the the discipline um, and the, the genre that I'm working in. Since you were originally interested in promenade, I can talk a little bit about um, the idea of place there. So in that essay, which I'll also explain that, so promenade is one one piece in a collection that I'm working on, uh, which looks at different iterations of in-betweenness or um, indeterminacy across culture. It's a really wide-ranging collection that looks at uh, this concept of not really having a name and not really having a place in lots of different um, sites of culture. So um, just about everything but what might be expected to be the main way that people are looking at non-binary issues, which is gender. I look at just sort of everything else. So that encompasses the work in Promenade, which is about climate change, the notion of design and this concept of off-use, the notion of race, of rootedness. Um, so lots of different ways that I, I look at it in the book. And so Promenade is a piece that meditates on my home place, which is uh, the state of California, my adopted place, which is Iowa, and then um, the notion of sort of no place in the sense of um, both the, the ecotone and the idea that climate change will continue to shift us both where we can be, where we can call home, who we can belong to. And, you know, to the extent that I think the idea of constant change and dislocation is going to be sort of much more the norm 
than being able to say, this is my home place. This is where I'm from. This is who I belong to. Um, this is where I belong. Thank you. I mean, I think that sense of dislocation mm -hmm. and the impending sense of change is really present in um, the draft of Promenade that you shared with us. So here you highlighted an idea that many can relate to regarding belonging to a place and people, especially beginning with the discovering the story of your grandmother in the book. But you're also making connections with big issues like immigration and climate change, uh, which I think is really fascinating. Can you share with us that story of finding your grandmother in a book and the process of exploring and expressing these connections through your writing? Yes, I'd be happy to. So, you know, growing up, um, because I did not have a strong sense of an Asian American identity. Um, I knew that I was half Korean, but my mom was busy trying to fit in in a white community in Fresno, California, you know, in the 70s and 80s and be sort of a mom. And there wasn't a sizable um, ethnic community um, that we were a part of. So she had sort of cast her lot with a Caucasian man, you know, in a middle class suburb in Fresno. And um, so her relationship to her Asian identity, especially since she left the Bay Area where she was from, where there are a lot of Asians and moved to a part of the state where at the time, it's very different now, but at the time, um, Asians were not prominent. So her relationship to her um, heritage was troubled and therefore mine was troubled as well. And so, you know, we would visit relatives, you know, we understood that, you know, my, my grandparents were Korean and a lot of our relatives were Korean, but, you know, because I was taller and, you know, much more Caucasian looking as were my siblings, you know, we didn't always have a sense of, of fitting in. And so I just grew up without, you know, a strong sense of an Asian American identity. At the same time, though, I did not consequently grow up with a sense of being Caucasian or passing as white. In fact, I have distinct memories of coming to learn that I wasn't a white person. I used to look more Asian than I do, but it would have been easier to just, to just be Asian because then I could be placed, right? Um, visually, morphologically. And then there wasn't, a, there, there wasn't any question. But when you look in between, when your morphology bespeaks a sort of fuzziness, then people are very curious. And so every person of mixed race gets the same question at some point in their lives. What are you? You know, they'll ask where you're from and various things, but they want to know what you are because they want to place you. And I didn't know I wasn't a white person because, you know, my mother and I didn't have these kind of conversations. And so um, it just left me confused. I bring that up because you know, so I didn't have a strong sense of an Asian American identity. I go off to graduate school to Iowa of all places. And one night I'm doing my research for um, my first paper in my graduate program, which was a class on the year 1903, because my professor had written a book about the year 1903, Tom Lutz. And uh, I had no idea what to write about. And um, we were brainstorming ideas. And I said, the only thing I know is that I was told my grandfather emigrated to the United States in 1903. That's all I knew. And so Tom said, research that. 
So I went and got myself a book uh, called Koreans in America, which was one of the very few, if not the only books on Korean immigration to the United States at the time. And, um, you know, so I'm reading through and learning a ton. And um, there is an appendix in the back that includes oral histories with several prominent members of the Korean American community in the Bay Area. And I should point out too, that many, many people think of Korean Americans as people who came after 1965, but I'm from a family that came before 1924. And the reason that that date is important is because you couldn't get into the country after 1924 for a very long time. So uh, if you were Asian, so, and I didn't even know that at, at the time. So I'm learning all this stuff and I'm reading this oral history. And there is this interview with a woman named Mrs. Ro Jung Soon. And I thought, okay, you know, this, this will be interesting. Maybe we're distantly related because, you know, I know my family is, is uh, the Ro family as well. Um, it's like Smith in Korean. So, you know, I had no, um, no knowledge that, that there would be any um, relation. But as I'm reading through the details of Mrs. Ro Jung Soon's life um, are starting to look very familiar. Uh, so for example, she married, she had an arranged marriage uh, with a man who became a barber and my grandfather happened to be a barber. Um, they lived in Oakland. They attended the, you know, Korean uh, Methodist church um, in Oakland and so on and so forth. So all of these details about the kids and the grandkids. And finally, I come across my own name and my family, my parents and their three kids. And so there I am, you know, in this book. And I had no idea that such an interview had ever been done, that my grandmother would be of any interest to anyone. My mother never told me that this interview had happened. And I just, I felt like, you know, I, I felt sort of claimed by Korean American people for the very first time. And I actually called my mom that night and said, why didn't you ever tell me that, you know, I was in a book? And she said, because you weren't interested. And that is absolutely the truth. So what ensued was um, this imaginative attempt to write my way into my family. So my book, Waiting for Mr. Kim, is a collection of short stories based on the tiny little breadcrumbs, the tiny little tidbits of information that I did learn growing up that I wanted to know more about. And so I did some research, but mostly I just sort of imagined my way into my heritage. And the collection is about eight or nine stories um, that I've written over the past several decades that attempt to do that. The first one, the title story, Waiting for Mr. Kim, is from a tidbit that my mother told me about, which was true, that when she was 14 years old, she was betrothed to a 60-year-old Korean bachelor. And she was expected to marry him when she came of age. And so every Thursday, she was expected to go down and sit in the parlor and play the piano for, for him to entertain him. And therefore, they would forge a relationship over the coming years so that she would be, be ready to marry him when she came of age. Obviously, she got out of that situation. Um, and so the story was my imagining about how she got out of that situation. So that's one of several stories that sort of follows this fictional character based on my mom through the decades. And so the book is that, is that collection of stories, um, just looking more closely at my, my family. But how does that relate to the work, you know, the ideas in Promenade? Well, 
this is where it gets tricky because the story is sort of heartwarming and you know and it is it is very interesting to think that someone who felt disconnected from their heritage suddenly felt found suddenly felt claimed but i wouldn't want anyone to see that feeling of being claimed as the same as synonymous with belonging because you have to remember the part about growing up always being asked what are you and never feeling as though i belonged to the people that we that that were my relatives and never feeling secure in my whiteness either and it it felt very threatening to not be white enough uh when i was younger and just confusing that i didn't belong to these people that you know um were on my mother's side so it's that sense of disequilibrium um racially and culturally that was predominant for me so even though this experience really brought home you know that i had a korean american side i didn't suddenly become korean american i don't consider myself an asian american and neither by the way do any asian americans you know who simply you know if i would say i was half korean i would always get told oh oh right you you must mean you're one quarter and i say no my mother is korean american and no one believes me so you know i don't feel um claimed by either side and so therefore what what happened for me is a de developing an identity that wasn't an identity okay there are plenty of people who are of mixed race so the idea of oh i'm mixed race is like this it's sort of a novel thing like you know i'm not going to claim either side but i but i'm going to claim this you know this positionality and frankly that didn't interest me either it's just another category right and so what what interested me was categories and the fact that i never felt like i fit within them even though i might have been placed by others within certain categories um racially i never felt like i fit and culturally i didn't feel like i fit so that sense of disequilibrium or dislocation was really what even though i wrote those stories that helped me understand my korean american heritage i didn't write my way into a korean american identity so much and so i've always been interested in dislocation so promenade is sort of a pan to the idea that i believe that I, the identity that cannot claim a space is really our future in terms of racial demographics we are all becoming brown the world will be brown race is not going to continue to signify as a form of identity based on color because you know the world is becoming brown people will find a way to be you know to establish difference for sure but race is not going to is not going to have um as much bearing so what attracts me is the idea that of constant change and it isn't all good right i mean if you look at the idea of climate change and the way it affects migration across the world you know right now much migration is affected by climate i have heard that you know 60 65 to 70% of migration from mexico is ultimately climate based despite all the other problems that they have climate is always bearing down on political and economic and social pressures that affect populations anyway a lot of that is related to climate and that's going to be happening more and more as we speak you know it's another very very hot summer in the south and so on 
There's predictions that people will, will have to migrate from the southern United States because it's just too hot to live there. We already know that the climate out west is too arid to support, to sustain life, you know, for the long term. There will perhaps be political migration because of, you know, um, stressed environments where authoritarian rulers, you know, have an easier time getting a foothold um, because of stressed populations. There's already a lot of internal migration that happens in the United States um, from homelessness, from COVID, from, you know, um, just precarious living conditions due to economics and so forth. So all of this change is happening. And ultimately, that means that the idea of belonging to a people, of belonging to a place, of having a place to call home, it takes on more poignance in one way, but it also has less relevance for our future. And I believe that it is time for us to look for other modes of being and relating that are not necessarily linked to belonging or rootedness. In fact, rootedness Frankly, it just doesn't interest me. And that is because I see, you know, change and um, the necessity of not clinging to what we know about ourselves and our people and our place um, to the extent that as we cling, I think, you know, we create uh, the possibility for conflict and that we need more of the tools of coming to the edge of who we think we are and being able to relate to people who are different from us in ways that I think are not so rooted because the digging in and the rootedness and so forth, I think is just isn't going to serve us when populations will shift, which will cause our sense of who we are and what we know to shift. Um, and we're just gonna have to get used to having neighbors who are both temporary and very different from us over and over and over. So what kind of worldview, what kind of sense of ourselves can adapt to that implied future? So promenade is a way of, of looking at that. And also, you know, talking about loss. I mean, my home, my home state of California is unrecognizable in many ways. I was at Yosemite in 2021 uh, the year after, you know, the enormous wildfires. And it, it was literally as though the places of my childhood just be, were, were erased by fire. And all of the memories that I had, you know, built up were um, charred, you know, um, they were devastated. Now, certainly they can be replaced and, you know, um, not the memories, but the, but the, you know, the places can be restored and tourism will continue and all of that. But um, just that year, I just had this really strong impression that the landscape was being transformed, you know, by fire. And then last year it was flood. And um, these kind of devastating climate events are going to continue to happen, thereby transforming the place that we call home anyway. Even if we insist on rootedness, you know, it's not going to stay the same. So Promenade was about, was about loss and also looking to the future. And I can say more about it, but I feel like I've been talking a long time. So maybe we can ask a different question. Thank you, Carol. Listening to you speak about Promenade made me reflect on my own reading of it. When we read something, we all get something different out of it, which is heavily influenced by our life experiences. I think our background as planners influenced the ways we absorbed your writing along with our personal background. Can you say what way you felt influenced as planners? Like what, what fit and what didn't fit in your discipline and your worldview of it? I think for me, there was a personal touch to it. 
I come from an immigrant background myself, so I related a lot to the feeling of being in between and never really finding a fixed place to belong and be permanently attached to. That's an experience that I resonate with, and for me, it's often a very physical one. I physically feel and see how, as I move through different places and spaces, the many ways that I am not represented there physically, and how that experience informs the ways that I want to be present in those places culturally and socially. I also reflect on my movement in space and how the relationship to people that are in place changes and for me reflects the openness that people have towards the other, the different, and the non-placeable. With the piece being so focused on the impact of climate change, there's still a reckoning to come in terms of our fear of change and how that fear can push us towards very unhealthy ways of being human. We become more close-minded and resort to things that help us feel more grounded in the familiar and away from embracing that change that is inevitable. Thank you. Yeah, really interesting. And I'm, I'm so glad you were able to find some moments of connection that spoke to your experience as well. I think it's also interesting, I think, from the discipline of planning. Place is always a central to, you know, kind of a lot of the discussions around community development, for example, where there's the, the idea of place making is, you know, that we make of the place, but there's also other strain of movements where there's an attempt to uncover history and connections and rootedness in place, right? And then envisioning what then it can become as more communities or more people are, or more the efforts are getting more and more inclusive. So I think that's kind of like there's that twofold that's happening, and I I feel the like the the um the shifting that can happen, but also like what Amal said about like wanting to be comfortable, wanting to be grounded, and you know in what we know. And I think you know Ramanad has made me really think about that. You know, like as a as a society and when when we're working with communities how do we envision alternative ways of making place or even how to how do we envision of becoming you know envisioning a life a, a different life together well if you don't mind i'd like to just um, respond to that a little bit before um amal's yeah. next question because you know it makes me wonder whether and i've learned this from you dion just in the little bit i've talked with you about um like orchard is it Orchard Place or no? Um, Ridge. Oak Ridge, yeah. Where, you know, the, the way you do walkways and streets has an enormous effect on the way people move and interact and so forth. And I wonder, there must be ways that you could design, you know, a city that affects movement and influences interaction that might not otherwise have happened. And I'm thinking, I'm referencing our trip to Waterloo where that's a city that's divided by East and West. And there were choices that were made in its history that guaranteed that the people from one side of the city were not going to have intercourse with the other side of the city, that there just was, they cut off the walkway that could have made possible, you know, exchange and encounter, right? And so um, if it's possible to do that, it's possible to do the opposite, I'm, I'm thinking. And so, you know, design can have this incredible impact on the movement, you know, of individuals. I'm sure you must know, you know, a, a lot more about that. So the reason I bring that up is because of the title of my piece, which sometimes people wonder about. So, you know, a promenade is, it's a walkway 
Um, it could be a kind of walk, but um, it's a it's a walkway out in public where you can sort of present present yourself, right? And so <clears throat> we sometimes hear about the high school prom. Well, that's where the word prom comes from. So the story behind that is that I had a student who was from Marshalltown, Iowa. So she grew up in Marshalltown and went to her prom. And the very same week in the very same facility um, where she had celebrated, graduated from high school, was the first major ICE raid in the state of Iowa, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement raid that um, rounded up many, many workers from a nearby plant and separated them from their families and basically incarcerated them and processed them and sent many of them back to Mexico. The young woman, my student, had discovered this much later in a class that she took with me that this had happened. She did not know it happened the very same week. She didn't even know that it had happened at all. And yet it basically happened right under the noses of the citizens of Marshalltown. And so you have this whole population of individuals, you know, who basically live and work there that are separated from, you know, the average sort of white middle class, um, you know, communities, neighborhoods of the town. And the idea that her prom could have taken place without any awareness of this situation was, you know, really riveting to me. And it reminded me of a story that I had written as a very young woman about a space in California where immigrants come through, which is called the SLU. It's basically a, a wildlife refuge, um, an estuary, and it's right on the, the border um, of the United States and Mexico and Tijuana. And so many immigrants used to come through there. Um, they can't now because, you know, the, the wall that was built is literally in the ocean. Part of it is in the ocean. So they can't get through anymore. And ironically, they just go further, further up the coast to get in. But um, back when I used to visit there, you would find traces of the people who passed through. And, um, you know, they would basically walk up the beach in, in a sort of reverse promenade or a different idea of a promenade. And so I actually wrote a story imagining, you know, the, these people walking through. And then, you know, I did, and in doing so, I imagined the vision of um, a mestiza woman um, who is totally unhurried and totally regal. And she, clearly she has a mixture of the colonial past that informs, you know, um, the country of Mexico and um, the lands of Central America, but also a sense of inheritance for this future, you know, which is going to um, contain her. So this image of her coming up the beach had come to me as, um, you know, a very young woman and then when my student had mentioned this had happened at her high school prom, I just sort of linked those two ideas. And the idea of promenade is the idea of many, many people going out, you know, walking, venturing out into places unknown, into futures that are unknown because climate change is going to force it. And then uh, just lastly, I'd had this realization that when, when civilizations disappear, I'd always thought of it as sort of like the buildings just sort of collapsing on people and there they are and they just, you know, everyone just sort of dies in place. And of course, that's not what happened. Of course, that's not what happened. And it never really occurred to me to think about it. That No one stayed. Everyone left is what happened, right? So you have all of this huge migration going out and those people became other people and some of those people are us, right? So that is probably what's, what's happening now and is going to happen in the future, uh, people leave, they become other. And we need to get used to that happening right now.
what kind of ways of being and ways of encounter can accommodate that? That was wonderful. Thank you for, for that response, Carol. You know, earlier you mentioned how how you had, you know, after finding your, your grandmother's story and, and your name in, in, in that book from, from your, your early days, how you had, you know, it kind of like inspired you to imagine yourself back into your family's history. Um, and, you know, that, that theme of kind of imagination and, and the role of imagination into ways of expanding the ways that you place yourself and kind of uh, the stories that you're able to tell and share comes back. And I wonder what, like, how do you see the role of imagination playing in, in how we're able to see and possibly materialize different futures? Mm, what a beautiful question. I love that question. I think for me, the concept of the ecotone, which I feel like really doesn't belong to me in my discipline, because I know it's a, you know, it's a concept in environmental biology, but there actually is a literary journal called Ecotone. So I sort of come at it from that end as well. But to me, it's this imaginative space that really does a lot of work in making me hopeful about what would be possible in terms of encounter. So basically an ecotone is a space, uh, a biome between two biomes that are distinct. And this, this space sort of has both of them overlapping so that you have species from one distinct biome happening in the same place where there's another, you know, other, other kinds of species happening. Often it will happen with say an invasive species. And this is what happened um, in the, in the slough, the area that I was just describing when I was talking about the border. So the estuary in, in um, the, the area uh, between uh, Tijuana and, and the United States is an ecotone area and there are invasive species and I read at one point, because I studied, you know, what, what um, biologists say about the area, and I read at one point that, that there's some biologists who say the attitude to take towards those species is not necessarily to eradicate them, because in an ecotone, they like to watch them and just see what might happen, like who, um, you know, how they adapt and how the, um, the surrounding plants adapt, you know, or, or it could be flora and fauna just how the habitat adapts, um, you know, to the, the introduction of invasive species. Well, isn't it funny that we, many Americans look at um, undocumented immigrants as a kind of invasive species, right? And the border is this place that is like a social ecotone. I don't, I wouldn't know what else to call it. You know, that literally is what it is. And so an ecotone can be an experiment. It isn't just a gate, you know, it could be this place where, encounter happens in, in lots of ways that we might imagine besides antagonistic. You know, it isn't the only response, you know, to uh, the introduction of something unfamiliar. And there's lots of work done on the border. So I, um, you know, I really, you know, want to give a nod to the incredible amount of work that's already been done um, about the border, including the really seminal work by Gloria Anzaldúa um, called Borderlands. But I'm fascinated by the idea of the ecotone, uh, which has similarities to the, the concepts of, of the border, because I, I see it as this place where we could imagine differently the kinds of encounters that happen among, you know, different species. 
as it were, and I use big scare quotes around that word, because I believe that knowledge is co-created, because I believe, as Martin Buper said, that the self is revealed in encounter, right? Like who we are is what we become because of our encounters. And if we don't have encounters that feel sometimes uncomfortable or even invasive, and I don't mean bodily invasive in terms of trauma, but invasive in terms of this is who I, this is who I belong to and this is who I said I am. And you're invading that concept. Well, yes, sometimes that's going to happen and it's going to happen more and more, right, uh, to people. And so how can we help people imagine a space in which, you know, this place uh, called the ecotone socially, culturally is maybe not safe. Maybe we don't get to have that, but um, promising and inventive and generative and regenerative. I mean, it could be those things with the right, you know, approach. Now, have people thought about this? Yes. So I think, um, you know, one of the most influential people for me is the work is Donna Haraway in her work, um, Staying with the Trouble, which is a book that talks about, she argues that we're not in the Anthropocene era, we're in an era called the Chthulhuacene, which um, references um, the web. So uh, Chthulhuacene um, is um, like, a, like a spider web and that we live in the age of the Chthulhuacene because we are connected in this, um, this idea of encounter across difference, but also across all sorts of power relations that we can't ever, we'll never make them um, equal. We'll never be fully inclusive. We'll never have full equity. We'll always be jostling, but we can always be working towards making things more equitable by recognizing that we're, we're forced into encounters that are hierarchical and, you know, uneven all the time, right? So what, what sort of sort of social apparatus can we try to adopt that can recognize this? And what Haraway very distinctly says is we must make kin, K-I-N as in relation, not no longer with our families. We must learn to make kin with um, the most extreme forms of otherness that we can imagine. Um, it's our only savior is to learn to call kin those um, who are absolutely the other to us, right? And so, you know, what, what does that look like? You know, we haven't done enough imagining around that. We need lots more people imagining that, only we're going in the opposite direction right now, right? We're, we're more binary than ever. And um, it's a really dangerous time to be thinking in such deeply binary ways because all you have to do is begin to see the other as non-human um, in order to have genocide. So we're, we're really playing with fire in that respect. So Haraway talks about this idea of, of making kin with, with those who are not only just a little bit different, but who are wildly different from us and including species not just humans that are, um, you know, that present forms of difference in encounters that we never could have imagined before. How do you create the openness around that, right? Um, and then, you know, there's other work that talks about, there's uh, the work of Tom Vanderine who talks about um, a kind of agonism 
where, um, yes, you have lots of different groups who are looking out for themselves or individuals who are looking out for themselves and their interests are coming into conflict with other interests, but you can do that in a way that is not antagonistic. You could do it in a way that is agonistic, meaning that you are, you are seeking to find a way to meet your own needs, but you're doing that within a group where you're always negotiating and you're staying in conversation with others and, and making new alliances where necessary, right? Antagonism is making someone other and trying to defeat them in some way so that your needs can be met. But an agonistic perspective allows for difference. And sometimes it is conflict-ridden, but with the aim of everyone eventually getting their needs met. And that means um, unusual alliances as well. So there are, there is, you know, there is work that's being done on it, but I think the idea of rootedness and identity, the more we entrench in those kinds of concepts, to me, the less able we are to imagine the kinds of encounter um, and the change that requires in us, you know, I think it makes it less possible. Now, there are people who will argue only when I know who I am, can I have an encounter with the other? And I can respect that. That is, you know, there's plenty of people who believe that. I just personally, I think identity has outlived its usefulness. I think it should be, I think we shouldn't invest so much in it. I'm not post-identity, but I just think we ask too much of it as a concept. Um, and I think we need to, to look at other, other social technologies besides the idea of, you know, discrete identity. You know, in every other aspect of sort of academic inquiry, we're finding ways that we understand our connections in ways that we never did before. I mean, if you look, look at, you know, um, environmental biology and, you know, um, fungal mycelial connections that happen, trees that are connected in ways we never imagined. I mean, there's, you know, in so many other um, forms of academic inquiry, we see connection. And yet when it comes to sociological perspective, we insist on this dis discrete sort of idea of difference that I think is, I don't think it's bad. I think it's just outlived its usefulness. I think we need more and something different now. And that all arises from the, the sense of betweenness that has informed my life. You know, that made me Thanks so much, right? After kind of listening to and reading and listening to that and thinking and reflecting about my own life experience, right? How I often have to feel like I to carve my own space to be in the world and constantly change. And I can relate to um, the idea of like having to somewhat put the distance between certain identity that I associate with in order that I, so that I can be, you know, kind of collaborate and make my own way in the world in some ways. There's also kind of, to me, a certain privilege in that, you know, being able to put that distance from the identity where in, in certain communities, not having a distance to the, the rootedness or having rootedness is a way to feel safe. There's also that contradictions. And I, 
I now that I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it in terms of kind of a lot of the works in community engagement practices, community planning that often ask communities to reflect on their identities first, like what you said, you know, kind of like thinking about like understanding who you are, what's your position, and then later on being able to like maybe use our imaginations to envision alternative ways of being. So I don't really have a specific questions, right? I think it's 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 just really fascinating way to untangle those those ideas. How I guess well maybe I do have a specific questions. <laughs> maybe just coming back to, you know, like your own way of like the tools that you kind of mentioned of like we need more tools of coming to the edge of, you know, ourselves and just being able to like see if it's possible to make kin with others. What would be one of like some of the tools that you've used in your own work, in your own life and practice that, you know, maybe listeners can take away with? What would be the tools that I use to do what exactly? To kind of, you know, be able to like come, like what you said, quoting, uh, coming to the edge of yourselves, right? Just kind of like, maybe um even though it's uncomfortable mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's necessary to be able to you know reach out to others or kind of see others as kin i guess what i'm asking is maybe what a, what would be a tool that you know you have relied on or kind of used on you worked in your work in practice that our listeners could learn more about okay well so I guess I have to take a little bit of issue with the question in some ways, but before I do that, I do want to acknowledge that I very much hear you when you talk about both issues of, I, I need to feel safe before I can have an encounter like that, right? I need to know who I am and have that respected and, and made visible, right? Before I can be asked to have this kind of an encounter. And when we have you know, social arrangements and hierarchies that don't make that possible. That's the whole point of, you know, identity politics, right? Is that um, we need to make that possible. And so in many ways, in terms of being white appearing and being, you know, of the middle class and being highly educated, I already move through the world with an incredible sense of privilege and mobility that I fully recognize is is not everyone's, right? And at the same time, so weirdly, on the inside, I can't talk with you about how, oh, I come to the edge of my identity and therefore this is how I do it. Because despite what I recognize as the privilege that I just described, I don't feel like there is this place that I'm coming to the edge to because I don't feel secure in that way. It's like a... The writer Leila Sabar talked about a kind of permanent disequilibrium that I have cultivated that because it was um, sort of the ground in which I was, you know, sort of formulated my sense of self. But I guess I could describe it as sort of keeping one ear cocked towards all of that which falls in between because I have sympathy for it and a sensitivity to it. Um, not just to the marginalized, but to those who, because the marginalized, 
they also inhabit a place, right? It's not one of privilege, but it is known. And there is a way where not even having that, that sort of in-betweenness is both what I know and what I recognize as being necessary for this climate future. But on the other hand, it would be merely a matter of shifting perspective for everyone to understand that in-betweenness is most of our day. We don't, I mean, we just don't recognize it. It's, it's simply rather a matter of a shift in perspective to see that rarely do we fully inhabit some sense of belonging or identity or even place because we're all moving all the time. It's just a fiction that we're this one thing, that we have this insular, self-contained self that moves around the world, right? It is politically and ideologically and socially and culturally useful, but it is a complete fiction. There's no evidence for the self. There's no evidence for the self whatsoever. We agree by convention um, that it's useful and it has proved useful in many ways. I think it's also proved destructive in many ways, but I don't, I don't feel like I'm coming to the edge of who I say I am because I think I've, I've had this long practice of keeping an ear cocked towards that, which doesn't fit towards that, which has no name. And it has always fascinated me how to reconcile that with being you know, very sort of rooted in this Iowa place, you know, I've had the same job for 30 years, you know, um, my identity is pretty secure in this place where I live and all that sort of thing. It's very hard to reconcile. And certainly, um, when you look at me as compared to, say, recent immigrants, you know, to this area, there's no way that I align my situation with theirs. But on the other hand, something about the way I see the world is always attuned towards that which does not fit. Had we have more people that look not just with sympathy, not just with understanding, but with the sense that you are my kin because I don't belong either. I think that could be useful to know that the sort of shifting ground under our feet is really our natural way of being. You know, what what is the state of being sort of regulated, right? So, you know, a healthy heart is one that is always doing something different. It's speeding up and slowing down constantly. It's always changing its beat. If your heart has a very regular beat, it means that it's diseased or weak, right? And so this always adjusting to hypostasis, I think it's called this always adjusting to the conditions, right? We're doing that constantly. We just choose not to look at that. We choose to think that rootedness is, is preferable. But we could look at our biology, our physiology, and our environment as in constant flux. We're just not trained culturally to see it that way. And we need more imagination along those lines. So I don't mean to be cagey because I, I don't mean to dodge your question because I do recognize privilege. But I'm also saying I can't talk to you about what it feels like to come to the edge of my identity because I don't, I don't even think in those terms. I think at a, at, at a time when we all kind of seem to be clinging on to that, that notion of belonging and then also fighting to belong, the, mm -hmm. the idea of getting to a point where we all embrace and acknowledge that none of us belong in order right. to shift 
our positionality and then also the ways that we connect with each other. It's, it's, it's very interesting. And I, and I, I really can't say much, uh, but I feel this, this need to reflect on it and really think about how I've connected with that in the, you know, before and and how I continue to connect with that. Um, Especially now as someone who's just recently immigrated to a new country and has kind of like left everything that's been comfortable for me for the last couple of decades to hit the restart button in a new place, you know, where I don't know the language, the culture, the the social setup. Every single day, the the things that I want to do are all about finding my place of belonging, right? Like, it's, it's very interesting how we, you know, there are things that we gravitate towards, but who, you know, who, what, who says and what says that, that that's, that's the way that it has to be. But, but you're describing exactly what I'm talking about. And that's mm-hmm. why I think travel and living abroad is so good for us, right? Because um, not that, you know, I mean, you're doing it by choice. And most people who, who move are not doing it by choice. They're doing it under duress. But the idea that you're continually trying to find your place to belong, that's what I'm talking about, right? That most of life is that, whether you're in a foreign country or not, you're continually trying to find that positionality of comfort, of safety, of security, right? But most of life is spent not in that. And we simply choose to look at the at the positionality, the security of that as preferable and as defining. But really what's defining is what you're talking about of all of this sort of sense of dislocation or um, impermanence or shifting that you're adjusting to constantly. Why do we not look there for information about how to be together, right? We could just as well look there, but we're always looking at rootedness as though somehow that is more, what, moral or more sufficient? I don't think it's more sufficient. Our conversation so far has been centered um, around the, you know, the, the piece that we had all read. Um, but could you please tell us more about your your upcoming books? You have a few on the way. Um, sure. So, um, yeah. So Waiting for Mr. Kim is coming out um, this September, and I've described that book. And then I actually have um, a novel coming out next year. And this is um, based on, I lived in France before I came to graduate school in Iowa, I lived in France um, for a couple of years. And this actually has um, a connection to what I was just talking about. My time in France, um, my French was very, you know, not great. My time in France was marked by a sense of seeing, like having that ear cocked to things that I didn't feel like other people were picking up on. And one of those was that um, during that time when I lived there, this was in the mid to late 80s, I would walk down the streets of Paris because I worked downtown. And every day when I walked to work, this was daily, I would see black and brown men stopped by the police and questioned and harassed, very often prone with their face under the boot of a policeman. This was a common sight and I didn't know, I just didn't know what I was supposed to do, like how I was supposed to respond, you know, but I saw that a lot in the, you know, in addition to lots of other great things about Paris, I lived and worked there. I had friends and, you know, would go socialize and blah, blah, blah. But it just, it was this memory that I had that, you know, you never see it in the, you know, the novels about, you know, Paris romance and all that. And so I just wanted to write a novel that um, recognized 
that, you know, there's this Arab population and African population that France has never really dealt with. And so this is, the book is actually about Gertrude Stein and her later years in life. So, um, but it's set in World War II and then the present, and it bounces back and forth between those two decades. But in the decades of where I'm describing modern day Paris, this, this presence of these um, dislocated immigrants, you know, it has a role in the book as well. So um, anyway, so that book is looking at World War II and then um, modern day Paris, and it's based on the later years of Gertrude Stein. So that book is called Helen Button, and Helen Button is the title character of that. And I'm super excited. That book won a prize too, and it's coming out from um, So Willow Press sometime next year. We don't have a release date yet for that. And then I'm working on this collection of essays, which doesn't yet have a publisher. And then I also direct the Drake Community Press, and we're currently at work on a book. Um, this is a this is where we create books with a community partner, and we help to share their story. And we we our motto is writing with because we we produce the book with our partner, and we involve the work of students in editing and design and so forth. But then we also learn about the values and voices of the organizations we work with. So we're currently working with the Iowa Environmental Council, helping them produce a book that uh, focuses on voices um, of everyday Iowans who talk about the concept of environmental justice. It's really needed because, you know, the environmental movement here in Iowa hasn't really taken up that concept fully. And there are a lot of voices that, are, that have yet to be heard around that issue. So we are um, working closely with them and we've, we've interviewed about 60 individuals from all over the state um, and are busy gathering those voices. And then we'll be working with a painter um, who does this incredible work that uses Iowa soil to help illustrate the book, um, which is due out in 2024. So I love that kind of community work of um, making books with an organization and helping to share their story because essentially all writing is collaborative, but this, these books from the Drake Community Press are deeply collaborative. And a lot of the learning that happens on the way, um, in the process, is part of enacting an idea of community that I really believe in. So that's what's coming next. Thanks very much for spending time with us. I, I'm really excited about the upcoming books and it's like reading them. So this has been really an enlightening and inspiring discussions that left us with a lot to think about and reflect on, definitely. So thank you again. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. Remember... Together, we can make a difference and create sustainable, equitable, and thriving communities for all. Thanks for listening. And until next time, this is Eka Permanasari, Dian Nostikasari, and Amal Bare signing off. <laughs> <laughs>